Hello and welcome to 20 Tim Minutes, a podcast that focuses on mental health in a serious but yet humorous way. Listen as I interview a wide variety of guests where we show our support as well as sharing our own personal struggles and stories with mental health. I am your host, Tim McCarthy, and now it's time to talk about it. Hey, what's going on, everybody? You're tuning into another episode of 20 Tim Minutes. I am your host, Tim McCarthy. Today, we have on an emotional management coach, Steve Besaw. Steve, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for asking. We got uh, connected through a mutual friend and former guest of uh, the podcast, Stephanie Simpson. Yeah, it was great. Stephanie was like highly recommending, started listening to your podcast. Such a great time to be on it now. It's always a little bit awkward sometimes when people like uh, suggest somebody and, and they might not work out. But then we met and I was like, oh, this guy's legit. <laughs> it's hard to find like good, like I, I'm a podcaster too. Sometimes you're like, you know, you ask a question. How are you? Good. That's yeah. that air. You can't have that air. Let's exchange. And you're, you know, we got good chemistry, so it's perfect. Yeah, we do. We do. Um, let's start off with this. What does mental health mean to you, sir? Mental health is probably something that I've, you know, unconsciously wanted since age 12, but only really looked into when I was 16. So when I was 12 years old, my best friend died in a fire and we played football and soccer together. I heard on the radio and they pronounced his name that he passed away. And my parents just said, that sucks, but you got a game on Saturday. So you're going to have to work doubly hard because he's not going to be there. And that was my mourning period at that point. And I don't blame my parents. Don't blame at all because that was in the eighties. That's how I grew up. But it took me till about age 16 where I got on the phone with a friend of mine and started crying for like, I can't figure it out. And then started talking about and thinking about AV. And I was like, oh my God, that was such a mess. And I'm like, what the, how am I going to fix this? Started looking into mental health and then um, went, to, went to the guidance counselor or whatever they call them at the high school. And they're like, you know, you're, you've got a propensity to sit as a counselor. And I'm like, what the hell is that? And they said, you, you sit there and you listen to people's mental health issues. I'm like, I get paid to sit down. But perfect. That's for me, man. I don't want to really work hard. Uh, unbeknownst to me, it's really hard. But mental health is something that has been dear and precious to me since then. And it's something that it's an evolution. It's not going to ever be fixed completely ever. And I think that that's what I like to think about mental health as being as important as physical health. And people needing to get that, you know, they don't need to go to therapy every week, but every other week, monthly, I have clients who come three months, uh, every, every three months just to get, you know, like they call it their uh, oil change. I think in mental health is an essential part of our life. It's like dentistry or whatever, right? In my opinion. So what is your relationship with mental health now? You're an emotional management coach. What is that exactly? Well, I like to be on the other side. So as an emotional management coach... What I like to do is to take how people handle their emotions. For So, for example, people think about only one emotion. So, you get pissed off, right? So, you say, oh, I'm angry. Well, no, that anger is based on something else. What is it based on? Sometimes on fear, sometimes on sadness, sometimes on surprise. And then you start looking at every type of element that you have in your life has more than one emotion. So, we start looking at how you define emotions. And then we start looking at different scenarios as you go along in the coaching and go, okay, why didn't I identify these two other emotions with that? So we slow the wheel of emotion is usually my, my go-to when I work with people Yeah, and uh, they love it and they start looking at it and they go, oh, so emotions are complex and like, yeah, that's, and then, oh, I can manage myself better if I address the fear, not the anger or what have you. And, you know, it's nice to see guys cry uh, and women get angry. 
I think that, you know, that's, they're not socialized to be that way. So having to coach people and go like, no, I'm going to express these things. I mean, perfect. I, I love it. Why don't you think they're expressed emotionally like that? We're, we're, we're socially inclined. You know, if a, if a dude gets angry or he gets, or he's happy, we're okay with that. A dude starts crying. I don't know how uncomfortable you get. I don't personally, but it's a lot of people are like, holy crap, what am I going to do? And if a chick cries, you're okay with that. And if a woman is happy, you, you're okay with that. If she gets angry, you're like, what the hell's wrong with this woman? She's out of control. Yeah. And so I think we're socialized in that way. I think that that's what we, we kind of tend to do. Like I said, I, I, my best friend died at 12. I didn't cry till I was 16. It's kind of like screwed up when you really think about it. Yeah. When you hold it in, that's never good. Yeah. That's why like to, to this day, I'm in therapy and proud of it. And I talk about it on my podcast, talk about it, you know, with my coaching clients. And I say, I also have a coach because I need to go look forward. And that's what, you know, having emotional management is to be able to look forward to managing your emotions in the future so that you're actually nice and stable when you're dealing with it. Speaking of emotion, you just brought it up and to quote the great rage against the machine is anger a gift. Anger is a gift. I love, uh, our, our connection with rage against the machine. There's a big poster in my office on that. But I think anger is such an essential part of life. I used to run anger management. It was actually one of my first jobs. I was running a group of uh, probation, parole, and I even did it in a jail. And uh, people would always say, oh, you got to get rid of your anger. I'm like, no, anger is a natural emotion. It's what you do with it that's really the problem. I get angry and I punch a wall and I hurt my hand or I punch someone and I hurt that person. Yeah, it's not healthy at all. I express my anger in appropriate ways. I can get it out, flatten out my emotions and be better in within an hour versus holding on. As you know, you know, anger is a gift because you need to be able to be outraged by stuff that happens in life, but you can't just hold it in constantly because it's going to screw you up in the long run. This might be kind of a vague question, but what are some topics or problems you deal with as a coach as well as what do you do to help solve those problems? let's start with couples. Usually that's where it starts. You know, I can't understand my wife. I can't understand my partner or what have you. Um, and they, they, they want to get to understand them better. And why are they shy? Why are they not talking? Why are they whatever? And so I start off by talking about, well, how do you address them? What's wrong with you is not going to work really well. Um, ask them, you know, you seem distant, you seem upset, you seem whatever. And then, you know, can you tell me more? And learning to just not let your emotions ride the constant comfort, like the, the relationship. So for example, if you came in, you were pissed off at me. And then I said, well, what the hell did I do? Then I make it all about me. And then I, you can't identify your emotion. I can't identify mine because now I'm on fear-based reaction, not anger, but fear-based. So you're like, okay, not be fearful. I'm going to know how to work out. Tim's a good guy. Let's work it out. Hey, Tim. You seem upset with me. Can we talk about it? Because I want to know if I can do something about it. If I can't do something about it, that's okay. And seeing where you have agency in that. Because sometimes it's our reaction that causes more emotions. So learning to manage our reaction to these emotions that other people may have. And not in a flatline type of way, because that's also wrong. Because I, I that's like HR stuff. And I'm not a big fan of HR. Um my mom worked at HR for 43 <laughs> years, but anyway, um, point being is that you need to be able to like, say like, you know, you pissed me off and this is why I'm pissed off, but I'm fearful. Like I'm going to fucking say something and going to leave. And if you leave, I'm going to be sad. So I'd rather hold it in. Now, suddenly we've identified three emotions in a couple that they need to address so they can be able to express it to each other. I see it in corporate too. 
So corporate is always going, you know, like I said, I'm not an HR guy and I don't want to do HR stuff. Ooh, you know, Tim, it appears that you've had some anger issue. No, that's not going to fucking work with people. Yeah. I'm a human being. Hey, you know what, Tim? I think, you know, I don't know what's going on. You seem angry. I sometimes do things to piss people off. I'd like to know more about it. And taking ownership as a corporation and being able to manage your emotions so that when you're going into a business transaction, you're going into these type of situations, you're able to look at what, wait a minute, am I reacting because I want to control the situation or am I, and am I really expressing what I feel? And when you identify all your emotions prior or during the work that you do, then you're able to manage better your sales, better, better, whatever you're doing so that you get what you want out of it. So it's really about being able to identify it because we always forget what's going on here or heart or head, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And I think we forget to look at it and go, wait a minute, I need to look at me. I can't just say like Tim's doing this or, you know, uh, Stephanie, Stephanie's doing that. Shout out. Um, you know, you need to be able to kind of like identify your emotions so you can stabilize it and also express it. You know what? I'll take ownership to this because you're right. I did throw a bottle at you and, or whatever. Yeah. And being able to take ownership, even as a corporation, you know what? You're right. We didn't give any bonuses to employees and you were an employee for eight months. We forgot to, you know, you know, you're, you're now an employer. You're part of the, we forgot it. That's on us. We apologize. Not just saying here's the check leave. No, take ownership and I, and being able to take ownership takes, you know, some emotional maturity. And that's what I hope people get from it. Do you think one of the biggest first steps is communication? I think communication, but I think more for first and foremost is that, you know, like, again, you know, we talked about this pre-interview. We, you know, we, we've talked, we didn't know each other, but we then talked once and then we came into here. We got a connection. So it's not about only communication. It's also listening to yourself, you know? So when you go into, a, you know, you've been in a situation where you see a, you know, woman or man and you're like, oh, that's going to be a hell. Well, listen to that. And then sometimes they're like, oh, this is going to be a good, inter like, I have a good feeling about them. Why do I have a big feeling? I'm not fearful. I'm not basing it on, on anger. And then maybe it doesn't work out, but listening to yourself helps you communicate more effectively. So I think it's really identifying the emotions for yourself. Then communications come, come in very important after that. Being a coach probably isn't easy, but what are the struggles you face personally as a coach? Well, as a coach, um, sometimes you, you do struggle with people who want to change, but expect you to do the change for them. So for example, identify your emotions. Yeah, I had this uh, event this week. I was angry. What other emotions? No, I want to talk about it now. No, you need to work on it. I don't want to be your coach for the next 10 years. It's good for my, my wallet, but frankly, not good for you. Yeah. Because that means you can't identify your own emotions. So for me, the biggest, the biggest thing that happens is that people look to me to manage them. I'm not coaching them. I'm not managing them. I'm trying to give them the skills so they can go forward. So that's one of the biggest steps. And also misunderstanding what coaching is about. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, when coaching, when you talk about coaching, most people talk about, uh, you know, they want to go to therapy and they want to talk about, oh, you know, that's from a trauma. When I, no, no, no. Trauma has nothing. Like, I can't deal with trauma. That's not my job as a coach. You can go to a therapist for that. As a coach, I want to help you manage the, you know, when you have a strong visceral emotion today, how are we going to manage that in the future? If you need, you know, therapy for your trauma, for example, go see a therapist, get your EMDR, get whatever the case may be. But for me, I'm on the other side. I want to make, move you forward. So, you know, that's 
sometimes difficult because people want you to do therapy. And as much as I love my job as a therapist, I really want to help them on a coaching level. So it's always a, like, it's a hard line sometimes to walk just because I have those two skill sets, but it's really pushing people to start thinking about coaching one way and, you know, forward, backwards for therapy. Now you're not going backwards in therapy, but you're going from the past. Yeah. I've always wanted this personally because I can be stubborn a little bit. Is it tough on you mentally as a coach when, if you can't get through to somebody? I mean, I, I can go on and on working in the past with the therapy. Uh, you know, I worked with therapists, but more importantly, I worked with first responders, correctional staff and nurses and people in the medical field. Talk about very stubborn people. Uh, you know, I'm here because, you know, my chief wants me to manage my effing anger. I'm like, great. I'm so happy. Yeah. Um, you know, um, and what happens is that stubbornness to me is just a way to roll with the, you know, as a coach, I go, okay, why are you still putting it on me? Well, you're not, you're supposed to do this. And, you know, I'm stubborn. You know, my traits, you need to work on your stubbornness. I can't do that for you. Yeah. And I think that when you give the agency to the person, so if you always turn to me, you're going to be screwed for the rest of your life. I'm not you. I'm not going to manage your life. I don't want to do that, frankly. But as a coach, it's saying, look, you have that power. So you want to stay stubborn, no skin off my back. You're going to keep on being stubborn. I don't care. But personally, I think you should change because that's going to move you forward. And I think that the stubbornness and again, shout out to my first responders that I work with in the past. They're the ones who really taught me about that. And then I work, you know, and if you want to talk about stubbornness, I, I worked in a jail for a couple of years. I worked at parole probation. I worked in a drug court or recovery court. And I worked with people in a social services industry where they're in therapy by force. So, yeah, I know how to deal a little bit with resistance. So why do you like working with first responders if they're kind of a little bit difficult? Is that you like the challenge? I know where they're coming from. So because I've worked with them, you know, I used to do a co-response thing in, in the state of Framingham, Massachusetts. And, you know, I, I got to talk to them, hear where they're coming from. And, you know, they don't get to open up because, you know, they have this sometimes persona that they got to keep on. But then that persona starts taking over even in their private life. And then they start doing that. And that's affecting their relationships. That's affecting how they deal with stuff. So for me, it's about being able to sit there and sometimes like and this happened last week because a guy was really blocked. Um, I've worked with someone who was like struggling and I said, all right, let's talk about football. Let's talk about hockey. And after 15 minutes, he's like, okay, I really need to talk about blankety blank. And, he, and he's like, wow, that was magic. You just changed it. I'm like, no, it's just, I know how to roll with resistance. I'm not going to force you to talk. That's not my job. Never will be. And as a coach, it's the same thing. I can't sit here and say, Tim, you got to change. No, it's up to you. I still don't control that. But when you give a person a chance to just like vent about whatever they want to talk about, that changes. And I think that when they see a little bit of change, that's what some of the guys say. I didn't think you'd change me. I'm like, I'm not trying to change you. You're changing yourself. And they put it on me and I'm like, no, it's you. And I love that because it's important to see that they have control over their own lives. So that's why I love my first responders. Sometimes it's a challenge and a half and yeah, uh, I'm going to resist uh, saying sometimes where I want to get up and smack them around and say, wake up. Uh, but ultimately they're just, you know, really nice guys who, and women, frankly, who have learned to just hide their emotions and for, you know, for good or bad. Right. 
But at the end of the day, you know, 95% of first responders, they just want to do their job and go home. And there are people like me and you, and they're not traumatized. Sometimes it's depression. Sometimes it's other mental health issues. I think everyone turns to trauma. Oh, he's traumatized. No, maybe he's depressed. Maybe he's anxious. Not always trauma. And I think that's the other part that I love because it's a challenge to figure out where like the root of the cause is. And no, I'm not Freudian by any stretch, but usually starts with uh, the academy or the first few years on the job. Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing that someone can be desensitized? Desensitized. I can't. That's one of the words I can't even say. <laughs> desensitized. Desensitized. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's because you, it's not. It, it can be good in the moment. It's not good in the long term. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you work, you know, as uh, I worked in the jail, you hear a lot of trauma. You hear a lot of bad stuff. You really bad stuff. And you need to be able to stay focused on to working on their mental health or their substance use. So you need to desensitize yourself as a police first responder. You're just trying to get them from the medical to if you're, you know, you're doing EMT or paramedic, or if you're a police officer, you're just trying to get them to cooperate and get some information. So you do need somewhat of a desensitization in that particular situation. I think desensitization becomes problematic when you bring it all over your life. And I think that that's where I think desensitization, you know, like it happened to me, frankly, when I was working the jail and parole and probation. And I like, I couldn't care less about life. Like I had changed. And that's when you see the desensitization. And I talk about, you know, not being trauma. I'll tell you, first responders and relationships with their spouse, usually the number one problem. And being able to kind of like, say i don't have to be desensitized at home but it's a hard transition and i get that too you know you took uh and i don't want to trigger anyone here but you know you hold two blue babies in the same night it's gonna fuck you up and you go home and you you, you like a block it out because your spouse is not going to get that you held two blue babies and sometimes they'll also say so they were dead who cares and they're not going to get what it does to your psyche. So you desensitize yourself, but then you carry a lot of other stuff that desensitizes you. So it's learning to desensitize enough to have relationships with people while also being able to be professional. And if you're really traumatized, then call the SISM or whatever they call them now, CISAR, whatever they call it this week. Uh, but having someone to talk to and, you know, a lot of departments, you know, they, they used to have me on, uh, and they still call me once in a while. Hey, Steve, uh, can you just work with this guy? It's a four-week thing, basically. I just, we just want to make sure he's okay. I'm okay with that. It's just learning to be able to be desensitized, maybe in certain moments, but not being it forever. You've got a lot of titles. You've been a mental health counselor for 19-plus years, substance use counselor for 20-plus years, telehealth worker for nine plus years, crisis team worker for 15 plus years. You kind of went over it, but I was going to ask you, why do you want to help people? Um, but what do you like about helping people? There's nothing like having that aha moment in people's eyes. Um, I, I can say that that's my junk, you know, like being a junkie, that's my adrenaline. That's what I go for. Does it take time and you got to be patient? Yes. But it's also having someone be uh, vulnerable with you. You know, vulnerability is probably one of the hardest things to do with most human beings. And, you know, when someone's vulnerable with you and you help them and they say, wait a minute, you didn't take advantage of me or you were able to be just listening to me, not trying to intervene. To me, that's those moments, too. You know, I uh, 
it always out of out of context it always sounds horrible but you know like working i work a lot of trauma for a while and uh when you work with people with trauma you work with women who have been traumatized and unfortunately with women it's usually men that traumatize them on an 80 percent level or give or take so you become the guy who can be safe and you're like oh you know there's other guys like me out there right and kind of like be that example for how healthy relationships can be so i think that there's a lot of different things that i love about my job but it's making that and you know getting texts to this day about hey i'm on my sixth year of sobriety or i'm on that that makes my freaking day and some of them like i've had guys who've been gone for three four years steve i got this 10-year coin man i want to give it to you and i'm like no no you keep your 10-year coin congratulations yeah those are the what those moments that's what i live for you have a lot of empathy i feel like what is it what how important is it to have empathy I think it's important not only in my job, but just in general in life. And I think that that's what we lost as a society. And I'm not going to just blame the American people. I think that Westernized cultures have been very desensitized lately about being empathetic. And what I mean by that is this, if you think about just politics, and I'm not going to get into who I'm with and who I like, frankly, I can get agreement with both sides, but people say I'm a fence sitter for that. Yeah. Okay. Call me a fence sitter. What's wrong with being empathetic with both sides. When I work with law enforcement, I'm not always agreeing with the first responders. That's one of the people, one of the things that a lot of people say. So you're always going to def- No, sometimes cops are assholes. You need to be able to see who's right and wrong in the right situation and not always go for, well, I got to absolutely support X, Y, Z. Because that's cognitive dissonance because you're saying, well, I've already worked with them. You know, it's learning to be empathetic and seeing what's right versus what you need to fit in your own box. And that's sometimes very difficult. Well, I'm a, I'm a Democrat. I got to believe that. No, you don't have to believe crap. You just don't need, you just can have your own thoughts. Oh, I'm a Republican. I got to believe crap. No, 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 no. This is what you need to challenge. And sometimes, you know, I joke around with, uh, you know, some of my friends and say, I blame uh, Teddy Kennedy and John McCain for this. And people say, why? Well, when they died, they stopped having that reaching, reaching on the other side of the aisle and having some empathy for each other. And people are like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. And you see that in Canadian politics. You see that a lot in European politics right now. You see it in South America. And I just think that if we learn to be empathetic on a day-to-day basis, we wouldn't just devilize the other person or make them angels. In fact, I think we're all both, right? Depending on the day. Sometimes I'm the nicest guy in the world, and sometimes I'm the biggest prick in the world. And I'm okay with that. I just try to be nicer than I am prickly. But, you know, that's how it is. And that's when you embrace your emotions, right? So that that's where the empathet- empathy comes in. You know, uh, watching TV sometimes can be very, you know, difficult because you have these uh difficult situations that go on but you gotta go wait a minute what is it oh because i'm okay i'm surprised and I, I i'm feeling a little bit like disgusted by that why is that i just turned to anger and again it's again the emotional management stuff yep. managing all that stuff together will empathy helps you get there but empathy has been unfortunately lost because we have to you know m- me versus them and i don't remember a time where i said i join a gang and i have to be that way so that's just me so you have a podcast but your book actually led to that can you explain the book and the podcast all right so the book came from like um this has happened uh, six seven years ago i started writing it just because i was writing someone said you should write your ideas You, you have an your own style so i started writing it and um took me six years not because i 
didn't finish it. I just like would write here and there and never really sat down and said, I'm going to spend 10 hours and write. And uh, the hardest part was actually the editing afterwards, not the actual book. And I loved writing my book. And the people who read it, they like, every chapter is a podcast. Why don't you start thinking about a podcast? And so I thought about it. And it took me a while to get there, but, uh, in May of 2021, yeah, that's, I think I just can't remember. Time is crazy, uh, man. Time is crazy. You know, and it, it, it started there and people started enjoying it and they're like, oh, it's a good podcast. And it started to take off. And I also have this fascination about human beings. And I think I bring that into the podcast because I think not only did my book was about, you know, I even reviewed my, my chapters recently on my podcast and like, oh, I changed this. I changed that because you get more information. You're allowed to change your mind. And I think if I can demonstrate that through my podcast and stuff like that, it's just important. That book was part of it. But if I had to rewrite the book, there's a lot of chapters that would change stuff because I have new information and that's what life is. Maybe it's time for a second book. Oh my God. You're going to put me on that pressure too. Everyone says that. Oh, it's your second book. I'm like, no, 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 I, I'll see. But, uh, I get it. Uh, where can people get the book and the podcast? Uh, the book is available on Amazon, um, and, uh, Barnes and Nobles. And if in, you're in the Metro West and Boston area of Massachusetts, there's certain like independent bookstores that actually carry it. So that's pretty cool for me. And what's the name of the book, by the way? It's the same as the podcast, finding your way through therapy. Boom. I think I forgot to bring that up. <laughs> I did too, apparently. <laughs> um, but Finding Your Way Through Therapy is the book. Finding Your Way Through Therapy is the podcast. Podcast is available on all uh, platforms that you can think of. Um, and I really enjoy the podcast. I do a lot of interviews. Um, and I also talk from my heart. And to me, that's the most important thing. That's why I like your podcast. When you talk about, you know, I think I told you before. I like your interviews, but I like even better when you're talking from the heart, even if it's like a hard day or a good day, it doesn't matter to me because that's part of what I really like human beings. I really appreciate that, man. Thank you so much. No, no um, problem. Well, if you listen to my episodes, you know, I use the word fuck a lot. I use it a lot, especially when explaining how I'm feeling. What's your stance on using the F-bomb when it comes to emotion? It's an enhancer. And I don't have a, I don't have a problem with swears. It's interesting that I haven't sweared so much in this podcast, but I swear. And I think that's fine. In fact, you know, I tell my kids, you don't swear at people, but you're allowed to swear. I don't have a problem with swearing. And the reason why is that sometimes there's no word for being fucked up. How are you feeling? Fucked up. What does that mean? I don't know. It's fucked up. Yeah. And then you can maybe work it out through emotional management, another plug there. But ultimately, I think that fucked up is fine. I think saying, you know, the swear words are just that. I mean, if I tell people all the time, if you decide that pencil is the word that offends you, then pencil is going to offend you. I don't get offended by fuck, bitch, bash, whatever, you know, whatever the George Carlin words are. Yeah. I just don't care. You know, I, I think it's important to look at, what it means if you call them, if you're just pointing at me because you're upset and i even have on my uh wall in my office sometimes when i uh work with people and they go fuck you i have a little check mark because fuck you doesn't mean go fuck yourself it means you got me you motherfucker oh yeah <laughs> like fuck you <laughs> yeah and you know you you know i love that because i write it down and people like even now there's some people that are so used to it they grab the pen and they put a little check mark next to it 
you earned it today. And I'm like, all right. So I, I think it's important to be able to swear because if you start being very precious about words, you're going to lose people. You know, it, it's not, it's not the, what they say. That's the word that's they're saying. It's what the sentiment is behind it. That's key. So I always end up like letting people swear private life and my job on my podcast because some people are like oh i can't swear i'm like yeah you can say whatever you want what do i care yeah and at the end of the day it's like if you're just swearing to be free with swearing that's one thing if you're fucked up you're fucked up and that's okay there's nothing wrong with that right what's the most important thing you learned about your mental health in this past year the one thing i've been really learning recently is that you know i was married for i can't remember how long divorced a few years ago and I just started a new relationship and I've learned that my attachment style is very important. And I'm working with my therapist in regards to that, because I think that what happens is, you know, I get avoidant and I do that with even my, you know, my friends. And I do because people like one of my friends who read the book two years ago, who's known me for 35 years, you never told me your friend died when you were 12. Yeah, I guess you didn't have that information. And I've learned that I'm, you know, I like to avoid and I'm anxious because I'm afraid that once people know me, they're going to, they're going to say, fuck you. Um, so I would say in the last year, I worked a lot on my attachment style and the favorite sentence of my therapist, which is really brilliant when you think about it, not everyone, you know, you got to do therapy for a while, but I get it when, for a while, after a while, why ask why? Sometimes I ask about the why in the past, why ask why it's fucking done. What are you going to do about it? And I'm like, oh, that's a good point. Right. Just move forward. Oh, okay. Um, so I think that that's what I've learned, but the attachment style is definitely something I've really noticed in the last year. As your, as for your professional career, what are you most proud of? Wow. That's a, that's a hard one because there's so many things. I think, you know, like I said, the aha moments are really important to me individually. The hard part of my therapy job is I can't talk about it. So there's a lot of moments that I really can't talk about that come from that yeah. as a coach. There's a lot of moments where like that, this stuff, this stuff really works. I'm like, you think I was trying to sell you like snake oil. And so that's my favorite part of coaching, but also like on a professional level, when I started at parole in 2004, wow. Um, time flies, man. They, they didn't have anything for reentry. They only had like, oh, you're going to do substance abuse coordinator. And it was like this DPH boring fucking sheet. And they're not asking about any other, like, you're not supposed to ask mental health when you're a substance abuse counselor or a substance abuse coordinator, which I never got that title. It sounds like I'm coordinating the abuse of substances, but whatever. Um, what was really helpful is I created an evaluation to this data parole uses. They've enhanced it since, obviously, and that's fine, but I haven't worked there in close to 10 years. And, you know, People say your legacy. I don't believe in legacies per se. I'd like to have a legacy, but people are like, oh, you, they don't remember who did that. And I'm like, I don't care. People are now getting help when they leave jail for their mental health and substance use, not just, hey, you're a substance abuse person. No, address a lot of things. So probably one of my biggest accomplishments is that. And also moving here um, at 23 with you know a few dollars in my pocket my mom did help me and my dad helped me i'm not saying that but essentially living on my own for the first six months and it's a lonely freaking thing to be here yeah it can be so what does self-care look like for you uh for me football hockey uh sports in general professional wrestling 
Yeah. Uh, who's some of your, who, before we keep going, who are some of your favorite professional wrestlers of all time? All time. I, I know it's going to be cliche, Brett the Hitman Hart, because I'm Canadian, but I love oh, yeah. Um, You know, Stone Cold's always been one of my favorites. You know, um, today, you know, Becky Lynch is someone that I really admire who's taken, you know, the little bit they gave her and really exploded it. Starting to really like Ricky Starks on AEW. Yep. He's also been given just a little bit and really expanded that. But, you know, to name just my favorites, I mean, it's really hard. And just seeing people, like, if, it's nice to see the arc. I mean, if, I don't know when this is going to be published, but if you ever get a chance to watch the Bloodline arc of the WWE, probably the best storyline they've done in oh, yeah. 20 years. Yeah, it's pretty good. I'd say the, the list, Chris Jericho, the list was like really good, but the Bloodline's like really great. It's it tears me apart because the bloodline stuff is I love Roman not you know I really like that storyline, but being a Montrealer, Sammy's a Montrealer, Kevin's from Montreal, like from Quebec, not far from where I actually grew up, so like I'm now torn because that's where we're at in the storyline. And you know when I'm watching that, people are like, oh, why do you enjoy it so much? Because I don't have to think. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> self-care and you know like people i say because i get a massage every month and like why do you think that's your self-care i'm like no i have two herniated discs it's to live so i can freaking walk that's not self-care for me self-care is sitting there and watching wrestling and just like gobbling up and if i miss the storyline don't worry i'll figure it out by the time i watch it in two three weeks yep I, I just love that stuff because i don't need to think and it's really as a uh chronic thinker it's really helpful that's fantastic. Uh, what's next for Steve Besaw? Oh, geez, man. I don't know. Uh, I mean, you know, the, <laughs> this emotional management coaching is really where I want to be. Um, I do want to continue my podcasting and really expanding to get a bigger uh, audience because I think finding your way through therapy, which is the title, but it's the truth. I, I want people to find themselves through therapy. And I think that that would be the two most important things. And ultimately, you know, long-term, I, I continue to help people. A lot of people who are uh, going in private practice or people who go into mental health, they sometimes call me because I've known in the area and I help them out and they expand. And a lot of people have said to me, well, why don't you market that? Because I'd rather have growth. We, we need to have growth in this field. And if it's, quote, my legacy that I helped out people when I was, you know, and I'll live with that, but continuing that emotional, emotional management coaching, my podcast, and, you know, trying to be a better father and just a better person in general and working on my own shit. Uh, you know, as you talk about in your podcast all the time, same thing for me, man. I think that in five years from now, I just want to be a little more emotionally stable myself. I hear that. I hear that, my friend. Where can we find Steve on the internets? Uh, you can go to my website, www w.steve-bison.com there you'll find all my emotional management stuff you can go and click on a package so we can have an interview um i have my podcast you can find it on all platforms my instagram is uh real steve bison or as i like to call it real steve bison uh just to be funny um and yeah that's where you can find me i have facebook i have twitter i'm not always on twitter but you know i think i have someone right here who's going to convert me to twitter very soon so mm -hmm. I'm waiting for you, Tim, to give me all that inside scoop. So, yep. Twitter's but, yeah. where it's at. Twitter's the good podcasting family. 
And that's what I'm like, that's what I think we always said five year or what are you going to do in the future? I want to get into podcast families because that's what I think is missing too, because I, no one makes it in a bubble. That's why I like to help people get their business going in the mental health field. Same thing. I want to, you know, podcasting is the same thing. We're not going to make it in a bubble. So we got to help each other. I got to switch things around. If you're watching this on YouTube, there are some items behind Steve. What is with the Bruins and the Canadians memorabilia? All right. So born and raised in Montreal, and I will not make like, so I'm a Montreal Canadiens fan first and foremost, but I've been a Bruins fan since probably, I want to say about 92 when they lost in the cup against Edmonton, uh, the fog game at the garden, uh, because my buddy is a big Bruins fan. He's in Montreal. He's always been a Bruins fan. So I was like the Bruins. I moved here and I'm like, Hey, love, love the local team. And Ray Bork was always one of my guys. Cam Neely, as much as he was hard to play against when I'm watching my Canadians have an enormous respect for him. And just like the mentality that an old school team like the Boston Bruins bring in, you know, if I moved to Nashville, no offense to Nashville, I don't think I'd be a Nashville fan. Moved to Detroit, might be a Detroit fan, but you know, that's what ends up going. But I just like the Bruins, the mentality, great year this year too. And uh, always been a fan of their team in general. So that's how it is. But the Canadians, number one. We're going to a game soon and I will be wearing my Canadians jersey. I do it every year. I get, you know, yelled at and made fun of, but it's always cool because most people have a like after the game, it's after the game. Most hockey fans are like that. I think for both me and Cam Neely fans, we can both say fuck uh Ulf Samuelson. Fuck oh yeah, absolutely. Ulf <laughs> not not a like I do not wish anything but ill towards that man. <laughs> I, I never liked Ulf. <laughs> absolutely love it um let's end we're gonna end up a little bit but first i want to say that you're such a great person steve what you're doing is like pretty much god's work not everyone can do what you do you have a big heart and i'm very happy and proud of you and what you do so thank you for coming on this show first and foremost thank you for saying that appreciate it what are some words of wisdom you would give somebody that's uh going through the shit i think my, one of my favorite quotes lately is we're all fucked up we're all just fucked up differently and work on it and not, you know, you can't compare yourself to other people. If Tim is, you know, now a inner, like a, I don't know, a yoga guru and he's doing great. Don't be jealous. Don't compare yourself to him. Give him a hand because that's his ev evolution. And that's great. I think that comparison is the, the, the thief of joy, as someone once told me. And I think that when you're thinking about your mental health, don't try to compare yourself to anyone because we're all fucked up. We're just all fucked up differently. And I've been in therapy for, I don't know how long, many years now. And I'll probably be in therapy till I die. And that's because I'm always going to need to evolve myself and work on my fucked up shit. And that's okay. Let's end with these two questions I ask everybody. Let's think about this. Uh, you're a Canadian or you're a professional wrestler. You come out to the stadium. What song is being played? Oh, I, you know, it's interesting. I was trying to think about that question and, uh, never met a motherfucker like me by kid rock comes to mind. Okay. Yeah. I know that. Uh, that's the one that would come to mind. Uh, but if you're going to go, uh, a little more iconic, I still like the glass shattering behind stone cold and just breaking barriers and doing stuff like that. That's why I think it's a symbolic thing with stone cold. I absolutely love that answer. Um, and also we talked about mama said, knock you out not too long ago. I feel like that would be a good one, but it's kind of played out, but it's a good one as well. I think it's, that's the thing is that I, I think we talked about that. I'm like, ah, oh, it's played out though. I got to find something else. So went with kid rock instead. What are three things that you're grateful for today? 
in my personal life, my kids, there's two of them. My girls are in my world. I'm grateful for my friends who stood by me through all the shit I've been through. I have three friends who have been my friends for 35 years. And I just think that for me, my, my spirituality, um, and I identify as someone who practices Buddhist principles. And what I love about Buddhist principles is that you can support any religion. And I'm all for that. And I think that developing a good spiritual life has helped my mental health and has helped forgive myself for stuff that I've done in the past. So I would be that personally, privately, uh, per, on, a, on a more uh, professional level. I'm very proud of the work I've done with the, with the I call the community justice system. We, we always call it criminal justice. I like community justice because cops are, you know, they hate me saying this, but they're social worker with guns. Uh, you know, people who work in the fire are doing more medical than they ever did before, and they do a lot of mental health work. And being able to work in the community justice system, whether through people who went through it or individuals who work in it, that's probably one of my biggest accomplishments. My emotional management coaching is 20 plus years of my experience going into work and being able to move forward for everyone so that they can get better. And for me, that's why emotional man management coaching is one of my biggest uh, uh, accomplishments. I really like that. And although I, I remember this from like when I started with 23 year old kid who's really scared. This guy used to stand behind the bu building where I used to work who people were scared because he had some, you know, he would have outbursts. And one day he came, he looked at me and he said, he goes, Steve, come here, Steve, come here. And he was pretty aggressive. And I go, okay, let's go by. He's like, you're going to make it here. You're going to make it as a therapist. You're going to make it as a coach. I'm like, why? He's like, you're you, you're authentic. You're not pretending. When you, when I got on your nerves, you didn't pretend I wasn't getting on your nerves. And my authenticity as a coach, therapist, I think being a human being is so essential for professionals and they forget that. And I think that to me, that's another great accomplishment. I feel like I've been myself for 20 plus years in this field. That's quite an accomplishment, I think. Absolutely love it. Steve, thank you so much for coming on 20 Tim Minutes. It's been an absolute blast and a pleasure. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. That's another episode of 20 Tim Minutes. Let's break the stigma by cracking a smile. I will see you guys soon. podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. If you are feeling suicidal, please dial 911.